Hello, welcome to How to Get Into Law School, a Seven Sage podcast. Join us weekly to walk through the entire law school admissions process from application to orientation. Good evening, everyone. I am Taj McCoy. I'm so glad to welcome you all here tonight for another session of our Admissions Dean's Roundtable. As promised, today we're talking about character and fitness disclosures and letters of recommendation. Some big topics today. If this is your first time joining us, welcome. I am a Seven Sage Admissions Consultant, a former law school admissions dean and director, a former law school career services director, and an author. With respect to admissions, I most recently served as the Director of Admissions and Scholarship Programs at Berkeley Law. My pronouns are she, her. I am extremely excited to welcome my colleagues as panelists representing law schools across the country today to continue our discussions on this new cycle. I'd like to thank each of you panelists for being here. And in the interest of time, friends, I'll call on you one at a time. And if you could share your current school, your title, and your number of years in the admissions world, I would appreciate it. I'm just going to kind of go across. So today I'm starting with Dean McShay. Awesome. Thank you. And hello, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Sean McShay. I am with Boston College Law School. I'm the assistant dean for graduate enrollment management, which means admissions, financial aid, and recruitment. And I've been in the profession about 22 years in four different states on the East Coast. So hopefully I am able to add some context and and perhaps even some liveliness since I'm (laughs) I'm a little loopy (laughs) right now at night. So thank you so much for allowing me to join you today. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you so much. Dean Lundy Roberts. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Janelle Lundy Roberts. My pronouns are she and her. I have been in legal education for more than 22 years. I think I am the, the senior of the group. I am currently at LMU Loyola Law School, serving as Associate Dean of Enrollment Management. I have been in California for the last 20 plus years and have served at three law schools total. So, Dean Mack. Good evening, everyone. And yay, I see Dean Simmons is joining us. My name is Bianca Mack. I'm the Associate Dean for Student Affairs at UNC School of Law. So I have admissions, financial aid, Dean of Students Office, and the Registrar as part of my team. But I started in admissions. It's my first love. It's been about 16 years. And I'm happy to be here with all of you. And my pronouns are she, her. Wonderful. Welcome. Dean Krim. Good evening, everyone. My name is Maya Krim. I am the assistant dean for JD admission and scholarships at Loyola University Chicago School of Law. And I have been in law school admissions for just over 21 years. Dean Simmons, welcome. Hi, everyone. Sorry for the technical delays. Tracy Simmons, Associate Dean for Admissions and Student Affairs. And I am in my 25th year, I believe, and happy to be here with you all. And Dean Butts. Good evening, everyone. My name is Shawnee Butts. I am the Assistant Dean for Admissions, Financial Aid, and Community Engagement at the Catholic University of America Columbus School of Law. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dean Butts. Now, throughout the panel, I'll be fielding questions to my panelists. For those in the audience, please feel free to drop questions in the Q&A widget, not the chat, and I will fold some of those questions in as time permits. I'm going to start with questions that I already have prepared, and then I'll weave some of yours in as we go. Okay? 
We're going to get started. Dean McShay, you know, we're now at the end of November. We're quickly approaching the winter break. Admissions officers have completed fall recruitment for the most part. Before we jump into today's subjects, can you please provide us with a picture of what admissions teams are doing at this point in the cycle? Wow. So a lot. So right now is one of those intersections where we kind of go from one phase of the work that we're doing in admissions into the next phase. So as you mentioned, yeah, we are you know, ramping down the recruiting component. But right now, many of us are starting. Well, let me say this. It really depends on where you are in the in the office, right? I, I think on the front end, it's really fielding a lot of questions and concerns, you know, responding to some of the angst of applicants who are right on the verge of submitting their applications. So, you know, do I submit this? Can I submit that? Should I include this? Are a lot of the the questions that our front of house uh, is receiving fee waivers and requests and things of that nature. You know, if I move my LSAT, how do I, you know, uh, does that disqualify me from, you know, a particular program or things of that nature? So lots of, of, of just general questions that are developed from the angst of being right on the verge of submitting an application is kind of where the front line is. And then certainly processing all of the materials that come through the application pipeline. On the management side, I mean, many on the management side are in the throes of actually reviewing applications. Some are making decisions. Some are not only making admissions decisions, but might be making financial aid decisions as well. I'm not in that category, (laughs) just to be clear. Right now, a lot of my work is really kind of centered on working with central campus and enrollment management, kind of getting a sense of where our class will come in and what types of mechanisms and supports and things that we need to put in place. So, you know, it's kind of all cylinders are a go right now. The admissions committee, again, at many schools are also reading as well. So faculty members are engaged in that process, but many of them are also going into finals as well, right? So there's just a lot of buzz happening. And we all know that when we get closer to exams, and once those exams are done, you know, if permitted on campus, we get a lot of visitors that come in and pop in. So I would certainly recommend that you check with the institution. Many of us, again, are going into finals. So if you're thinking about, you know, visiting campuses, you're probably going to be visiting at a time where many students are not going to be available moving beyond this week. And that could really hinder your experience because people will be in study mode or they will literally be gone in about a week or so just because finals will be over and they're going to their families and to their work or whatever they're going to do. So that right. was a lot. <laughs> it was a lot, but I think it's kind of all cylinders are a go high, Dean Butts. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for that, Dean McShay. So as I mentioned, today we're talking about character and fitness disclosures, which can encompass a number of subjects. Most often we see questions that touch on issues involving criminal allegations, citations. We'll see things about instances involving academic performance or honor code violations. We'll see information about events regarding professionalism. And sometimes we'll see questions about participation in things like civil lawsuits. I'm going to just ask a blanket question, Dean Mack. Why do law schools ask these questions? Great. I just got a phone call about one of these questions today. Um, Perfect. And, and because there are, are new things that are popping up as well. Right. 
typically we're asking these questions for those of us who still ask these questions. I think there are a small number of law schools who have actually moved away from asking these questions. The positive reason that most of us ask these questions is so that we can sort of pre-screen and make sure that we are aware and we can alert an applicant, a potential admit, an actual person who's enrolling at our institution about any challenges they could have for licensure purposes. So you're pursuing a three-year degree, you've got to pay for that. It's a sunk cost because you're leaving the workforce or you're not entering the workforce. So before you make that investment in time and money, we really want to ensure to the best of our ability that you're going to have access to enter the profession for which we are training you. So that's the largest motivator, I think, for all of us to ask those questions. I think the reason why some institutions are moving away from asking those questions in the admissions process is to try to mitigate any bias issues that that could occur with different members of admissions committees. I would like to think that does not happen very often. I think for 95% of the disclosures that we all see, they're not going to keep you out of school. But there are decisions surrounding disclosures that could reflect poorly on you from a judgment or ethical perspective, character perspective. If you don't disclose something, whether you think it was expunged or you didn't think it was responsive to the questions we ask, you should be very certain that you are really giving us everything that we've asked for. When in doubt, disclose. It's typically not going to keep you out. And the other thing that I just want to mention, I got a call about this today like the personal devices, like the smartwatches and all the technology. I think, I don't know if my colleagues can attest to this, but I'm starting to see more of the, my LSAT score was canceled because I forgot to take off my Apple watch or, you know, just little different things that as we're moving into different test environments where you've got remote proctoring, people are watching you, whatever that setup is, then that means that there are are other considerations mm-hmm. that honestly, when m- most of us were taking tests, we didn't have smartwatches. We didn't have smartphones. None of these were issues. So, you know, as they're coming up more, I'm, I want to mention them. I also want to tell you, we are seeing these more. We understand the environment that you all are testing in. So as long as it's not a pattern and it's just an honest mistake, I think I get how it could happen, but just really, you have to raise your awareness of where all the little tiny pitfalls could be when it comes to, you know, academic and kind of testing integrity now with the environment that we have been in in recent years. That's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. In terms of character and fitness questions, when it comes to criminal charges, convictions, etc., Dean Lundy Roberts, why do some schools want information on traffic violations while others don't? And if some want it and some don't, should I just provide the same statement to everybody just in case? No, that's a great question. And I think it is very important to start with the instructions for each schools. And as Dean Mack alluded to, you know, in the last three years in particular, a lot of our schools, a lot of our committees, a lot of our faculty members have asked the why. Why are we asking these questions? 
For a lot of schools, it's based on what the character and fitness application will be when you uh, go through that process, depending on the state that you plan to take the bar in. So they're using that as the framework. That is one of the reasons that you'll see those slight differences across applications. I say, you know, create an application that is for that specific school. Of course, you know, there is no danger of over-informing, but sometimes if you get someone who's not really paying attention, then I'm nervous that you're sa- I'm always nervous when a, a prospective student is sending the exact same application to the five, four, three, seven schools they're applying to, because to me, that is an acknowledgement that I'm not paying attention specifically to the schools that I'm interested in and, and making the case on why I am a good applicant for this specific school. So if you're kind of using a broad butt brush, I think you're losing that ability, not just with character and fitness, with the, but with other parts of the application to, to describe and to advocate and to relay why you're a good fit for that particular institution. So that's just kind of my broader philosophy on that. Specifically, I, you know, I would answer the question as is asked, right? Because there is a lot of time and attention that goes into it. So don't overthink it. Don't give us too little. If you're going to err on the side of making a mistake, I would rather you give us more. Don't give us too little, but just answer the question. Like, don't make this application process harder for yourself than it needs to be. Now, speaking of just answering the question, Dean Krim, if I have a record, but it's been sealed or expunged, why do some schools still ask for this information? And do I have to disclose it if it has, in fact, been sealed or expunged? So that is a really good question. It will depend potentially on the state in which that school is located. If that school's application is asking for that information, I do recommend providing it. Sometimes I hear from applicants who say, you know, they were advised by an attorney not to provide this information. But if if the school is requesting it, it would be, I think, in your best interest to still provide that information. As was stated at the beginning of of the conversation, the reason schools ask for this information is in, in most cases, you know, for a larger purpose than just our admissions process. And we want to try to avoid, you know, get through those hurdles, so to speak, early in the process, as opposed to, you know, three years into your education and then not being able to sit for the bar in that particular state. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Dean Simmons, there are times when applicants here, you know, based on their character and fitness responses, their application may be one that is sent to the admissions committee. What does it mean to have your application sort of escalated to the admissions committee for for a character and fitness response? Generally speaking, depending on the structure of the office, you know, typical law school admissions answer, it depends, right? But it depends on the structure of the committee and the process of the law school. In some instances, the reason that an admissions officer would send this to committee is because they want to make sure that the incident or issue is vetted by multiple people before a decision is made. I mean, to be frank with you, sometimes it's really about, you know, CYA, basically kind of giving our giving ourselves coverage because we need to make sure that our committee who are generally faculty members are aligned with our decision. We are looking for backup to say like, yes, this happened, but let's review this together and make the determination that yes, it happened, but the student has, you know, completed whatever they need to complete, has not had any inc- incidents or issues since then, would be fine in our community, things of that nature. I mean, usually these are for incidents that are at a much higher level than 
you accidentally had your Apple Watch on doing your exam or you forgot to, you know, do something in front of a proctor and that's why you got an F, you know, kind of thing. I mean, it's usually more serious incidents that rise to the level of being sent to the committee. However, I will say there are schools that every single incident that could come under a character and fitness umbrella has to go to committee. So every school structure is really different. Um, we don't want to alarm you. Just understand that the structure of the school and the makeup of the committee could have an impact on why a file is on hold for committee review because of character and fitness. Just be prepared for that. And if we need additional information, we will ask. I think going back to Dean Lundy Roberts' original point about kind of oversharing and not oversharing, this is a situ- situation where it's always better to just share what you have and what you know and be frank about it. That will serve you much better than being coy and or being flippant and or playing games with the language. Be explicit, ask questions. If you're not sure, that will serve you better in the long run. But ultimately, there are many reasons why it might go to committee. Just be prepared for the fact that the committee will take it seriously and that we try our best to ensure that our committees are made up of people, as Dean Mack pointed to, that are open-minded and have no bias You know, against folks who may, may have had an incident in the past. Last comment for now is that I think for all my colleagues here, but all my colleagues around the country, we want to make sure that we're not judging someone based on a mistake they made or what could have been the worst day of their lives for a variety of reasons. We try to take that in consideration. Thank you, Dean Simmons. Dean Butts, why do some schools ask for disclosure of incidents that happened before college and high school and, and, and things like that? So in some cases, it can be kind of a variety of different reasons. One, they could be looking for maybe a pattern of behavior and they want to make sure they kind of get a fuller picture. Two, depending on the jurisdiction where you're applying for the bar, the board of bar examiners are going to ask for that information as well. So it's important to make sure that if the question is asked by the the law school that you, in fact, again, as Dean Lundy Roberts indicated, err on the side of oversharing. That way, when you are applying, you know, hopefully you've successfully completed law school, you're applying for the bar and they ask us to send them the information that you disclosed in your application. Hopefully everything matches up, right? What you've disclosed matches what we have matches what they've been able to find. And a lot of times they do, obviously they do a more thorough background check than the law schools do. So even if you don't disclose it to us, if it's then subsequently discovered afterwards, you could run into to problems with being able to sit for the bar. So that's, you know, again, they're asking, we are asking because the, the bar is going to ask eventually. And again, we want to make sure we have a thorough history and documentation to support that. Thank you for that. Now, Dean McShay, when it comes to drafting a character and fitness statement, how how detailed should I be? Is it sufficient for me to say, you know, I was found in violation of penal code section 853? Do I have to tell you what that is? Do I have to give details as to what happened? Do you want to know about a court hearing or a fine or, you know, any kind of community service? Do I need to tell you that I'm sorry about it? Like, what what is it that you want in a statement like that? I think all those things, but concisely, right? Each jurisdiction will have different, just for a little bit of context, right? I, I think that when students see the character and fitness section on our application, they have no idea in many instances that there is a whole evaluation that happens after the law school experience from whatever jurisdiction or state, let's just say state, 
<laughs> for whatever state that they are applying to practice, you know, the law in. And each of those states has a an evaluation that is required that generally asks you to recount your history in a variety of, pre- of on topics, education, employment, finances, residency, all of those things. In addition to those types of topics, you know, convictions, violations, those are also questions that you might see. Law schools are trying to get you in a process of thinking about those things, looking back to your history now so that you can understand what the challenges are or may be as you're navigating through the admissions process and then make strong decisions ethical decisions as you're navigating through that process and your law school academic experience. So when you are telling us, as you would in any supplemental piece, you are clearly identifying or you need to clearly identify what the thing is, what was the circumstance around surrounding that thing? Because context matters. I think maybe it was Dean Simmons earlier that mentioned that perhaps that thing was your worst day ever. And, you know, it's just highlighting that worst experience of your life on the worst day ever. Right. But we still need to know the context of what happened. Just telling me the penal code. I don't know what that means in Wisconsin. I don't know what that means in California. They're not the same across all jurisdictions telling us not only that code, but what happened, when it happened. And if there are multiple things really kind of giving us the, the rundown of those things, sometimes you'll find that maybe there was a series of events that spiraled off of one and you can kind of give us that in a snapshot and and give me an overall summary of those things. But I do need to see what the resolve is. I think the resolve is important. We're trying to make a judgment call on whether or not you have the moral compass <laughs> to to be the steward of law for people who don't have that ability and that knowledge, right? You are interpreting laws for them. You're pr- helping them provide solutions. We want to make sure that your moral compass is in a, is strongly grounded so that you can move on and take on that responsibility in a, in a, in a positive and effective way. So be concise, but be clear. I do think, as Dean Lundy said, there is a thing called oversharing. Don't give me more information than I'm asking for. I happen to be in a state that really has a lot of protections around a person's criminal background or, or I shouldn't even say criminal, but around a person's personal background and minor offenses, non-felony things, my state, especially like first offenses, you are not required to disclose those things. But I have also lived in states where you might be responsible or required to include information for everything down to a traffic ticket. So again, those directions are really important. And I I hope that that answered the question in terms of what we're looking for in the response for that. The bigger the response, though, the bigger the issue that I have to, to that I assume that it is. Keep it concise. Keep it clear. And. I think we'll be able to move on. The The final thing that I will say is I, I'd like to provide, I guess, some, and this is just my own personal situation, so I cannot speak for other schools or for the industry. You know, at my institution, in the applicant pool, I would say something to the tune of about 30 to 35% of 
applicants have some type of character and fitness flag. Now, bear in mind that covers a lot of stuff, right? It's not just criminal stuff. It could be discipline in an academic setting. It could be I was involved in a lawsuit or something because there's some character and fitness sections that ask that. It could be separations from an academic situation where it might not be a negative thing, but it's just there is a flag in the character and fitness section, which means you said yes to something, right? But 30 to 35% of my candidates have that. Of my matriculants, probably about 15% of them have that. But also understand that there is a huge difference in that. We're talking an applicant pool of thousands and a matriculant pool of 200, right? So just I just wanted to put that out there to give you a sense of, number one, I think that means that it's pretty common. And number two, I have, in my 22 years, I have not seen anyone not be able to sit for the bar. And now my colleagues might differ, right, in their experiences, but I have personally not seen anyone of my students at any of the schools that I've been a part of who were not able to practice the bar based on the things that they disclose. So I, I say that because Again, I think a lot of people get angst and a part of the new, a part of this, this justice impacted energy right now is because there's so much angst that people walk away from the thought of ever being a lawyer. And I think that perspective could be unique in the law. So uh, I'll stop there. <laughs> yeah. Keep it concise. <laughs> Dean Butts. I do want to add, you know, Dima Shea made a very important point that People rarely are stopped from taking the bar because of what they disclosed. It's what they didn't disclose that becomes the issue. So that's one of the things you'll want to remember if there's, it's, I guess, you know, what's that saying? It's not the crime, but the cover up that gets people in trouble. It's right. definitely the issue here is if you're not disclosing information, they find it that, you know, that's going to be a tougher explanation than just, it, you know, s- supplying us with the information that was asked. Mm-hmm. Dean Lundy Roberts. And let me say that, unfortunately, I have seen people significantly delayed, right? So eventually they got to the point where they could sit for the bar. And this goes exactly to Dean McShay and Dean Butt's point in a sense of, you know, disclosing that the importance of disclosing, but that delay was not insignificant, right? Because if you're talking about it taking longer for them to get through the application process, it may be the difference between them taking the July bar for Californians or the February bar. You know, that's six to seven, eight months of delayed employment you may have. Now to think about if you have a job offer, what is your employer going to do now that you can't, you know, you're, you're delayed fulfilling those requirements. So exactly to the point of disclosing is not the issue. It's like hiding the ball is the issue. We have, we have, in my experience, had students who weren't fully forthcoming. And we give them another chance at orientation at once they enroll and they're sitting before us and say, hey, remember those character and fitness questions you answered for us? Make sure you go back and make sure you really answered it for us. And a lot of schools do that. So if that is the case and you're feeling like, I'm going to take a chance, don't take the chance, number one. And if you do, make sure that you at disclose it when you get to the point that you're actually matriculating to law school and hope it doesn't impact your admissions decision at that point in your enrollment. And I think that's an important thing to touch on really briefly, you know, in talking about things that were omitted, right? 
having been a law school admissions dean myself, I I have had instances where someone has omitted information and then they came back later after school had started and decided to disclose and tell us the truth so that we had it on record for when they decide to apply for the bar. Now, what they didn't understand was once they disclosed that information and amended their application, that meant I had to take that application back to the admissions committee and we had to look at it again to see if we would still have admitted that person had we known that information up front. And for one very unlucky individual, we actually rescinded their admission at that time. That is something that can happen at any point throughout your law school career. So if you wait until after you're uh, getting ready to graduate and then you decide to disclose because you know you're getting ready to apply for the bar, can an admissions committee still rescind your application? Yes, you will have had three years of education that you have to pay for, but you have no record of that education and you cannot sit for the bar. This is serious information. When we're talking about disclosure, it's it's a big deal. Even if whatever the offense is, is minor, disclose, okay? Now, I'm coming to you, Dean Lundy Roberts. We're going to switch gears and, and start talking about some academic things in nature. Do issues of academic dishonesty or plagiarism immediately result in rejection? And secondly, is there any disclosure where we're starting to see now these, these AI policies and chat GPT being lumped into this particular section? Is AI as serious as academic dishonesty or plagiarism? So I think the response to that question is the, the, the reliable, it depends, like old faithful. I do think that there are issues of academic dishonesty that are, can sometimes be more serious in all honesty than criminal incidences. And we've been really careful. It's been really terrific to see the admissions industry even reform the language as we talk about students who have an incident in the past and it's become justice impacted. And I remember the first time prospective student asked me that and I had to think, I was like, what, what are you asking me? But it's the reforming of the language because it doesn't go to your character, right? You're not the worst thing that you've ever done. I think academic dishonesty can be a little bit different because it does go to in a situation that was pressurized, you were taking an exam, you were writing a paper, and there were very specific rules and policies around those exams and papers, as there will be in law school, you use that opportunity and you did not behave according to a standard of ethics that is going to be required in the profession. That's the thing about academic dishonesty that I think requires your careful retelling of whatever you think the incident was. And I do think you have to show reflection. And if you're sorry, you should say you're sorry. If you don't say you're sorry, that's going to give me pause because it's sort of the lack of recognition of the seriousness of your issue. And we obviously are looking for you to have a certain level of character. I think Dean McShay said this in a profession that's guided by very strict ethics and a code of conduct. So I think that's really important. With respect to the, the AI piece, and I love my, my colleagues' thoughts on this as well, we're still learning, right, what that means. We've reformulated our application. We've said we want the personal statement to reflect your work. But, you know, we are honestly not going to evaluate, you know, the three or 4,000 applications you receive. But don't take the risk, right? It's not worth it. That is a space that I think is developing. It's one of the spaces I think is really careful that you read every application's guidelines and instructions. Some of us are going to be really clear in what our expectation is in your use of GPT. Other schools may have done nothing. 
I think you should err on the side of demonstrating the best integrity that you hope to exemplify in the profession when it comes to chat GPT, even if those guidelines are not there. Thank you for that. I'm going to do one more character and fitness question, and then we'll start moving forward to letters of recommendation. Dean Mack, when it comes to professionalism questions in character and fitness, why do some schools want to know about termination from jobs or dishonorable discharge from the military? I, I think that that is, you know, going back to what Dean Lundy Roberts was just talking about, right? It, it's going to judgment. It's going to, has there been reflection? Do you understand what the implications were of a decision you made, right? So students are like, I will, I didn't clock out. And the rule was I was supposed to clock out. So this happened three times and I was terminated. Well, what did you learn from that situation, right? Because there are going to be things that come up while you're in law school and in the profession, right? If you're going to a, a law firm, you're probably going to be billing in six minute increments. You need to be honest and have integrity when you are reporting your time. So, you know, little things like that, it's not necessarily that you were fired. It's the circumstances surrounding that termination. And then what did you learn from the decision making that led you to that termination? And how are you viewing that right now? And, and it's the same thing with discharge in the armed forces or other things. If, if you have committed to something, you know, we want to know why you failed to fulfill that obligation that you willingly committed to because you are going to take on clients. And they are going to be depending on you for very serious issues in their lives. So we need to know that you're not going to let yourself or those clients down or your employers. So we're actually trying to learn more about the circumstances and, and what you've learned and what your takeaways were from those experiences. And it's less about that you were actually fired or this was, you know, the type of discharge that is on your military record. We we want to know everything else that surrounds those kind of points in time. Thank you for that. Dean Krim, I'm coming to you. Now, I've been out of law school for four years. Why do so many law schools have this requirement that I have to have an academic letter if I haven't been out of school for more than five? So that is a great question. And and not to change the subject, I apologize. I just want to add one more note regarding carrots and fitness academic related. So I, one of the sort of uh, missteps that I often see is applicants who were on academic probation or something similar at their undergraduate school and they don't remember, they get flagged in the process and they're super surprised and there's like a back and forth and trying to, and holds up the application. So just wanted to just say, review your transcript if you haven't done so already, so that you're aware that that is one of the things that will come up in the process. So I just wanted to throw that out there because I see it so much, but also, okay, in terms of letters of recommendation, why we still would like to see an academic letter. Um, and we do realize there was a pandemic. We do know this. We know that you may not have formed the same relationships with faculty. Although I also hear the, the reverse where some of the relationships were even better, right? Because they are like talking talking one-on-one -on -one with their faculty member over Zoom because they had time, right? So it's, we're going from one academic endeavor to another. So that is just a real important, you know, individual that we would like to hear from. Faculty member doesn't have to be 
the department head, but we want to hear from folks who taught you, who worked with you in that particular setting. That's just super important. So that's why that timing seems a little bit longer than maybe, you know, seems reasonable. But if you're able to... I wish I know what she was going to say, because then I would finish her sentence for her. <laughs> if anybody has a sense of where she was going, please feel free to jump in. Well, she, I think I felt like she was going to say, you know, academic part of the reason, you know, we look for academic letters is because we oftentimes, particularly our faculty members on the committee want to hear from people that do what they do. They mm-hmm. want to hear the perspective of someone that is in the classroom space and how this particular candidate or applicant has interfaced with them, how they've interacted with their classmates from the perspective of being a professor or teacher, instructor type thing. That's super helpful. I think. Yeah, that was the guess. I did my best. (laughs) No, that was great. Dean Simmons, I'm going to stay with you. I, I got this question via email and I thought I'd bring this to the group. Do letters of recommendation actually carry weight? That's a really good question. I, I feel like my my general answer would be everything that we ask for carries weight. The weight that it carries can sometimes be dependent upon the LSAT score, the GPA, the major, the personal statement, etc. I think there are times when we have a file where the statistics are, you know, in the middle. They're not the strongest. They're not the weakest. The file's okay. And then you get a letter of recommendation from someone who talks about how brilliant this particular student is in spite of what we may see on their transcript and gives us context for why the GPA may not be the best reflection of what they can do and what they're capable of. And I have found myself often really inspired and moved by some of the letters of recommendation, which is also a reflection of the judgment of the applicant, though. That can go both ways, too. If you are smart and you are thoughtful about this process, you would have reached out to people who you know have your best interests at heart, are invested in you. In that instance, this is where the letter of recommendation could make the difference between a waitlist and deny or between someone getting admitted versus waitlisted. So if they do carry weight, I think you should take it as seriously as you do your personal statement and submission of any optional essays. You should take the the process seriously and invest in the process because you'll be pleased with the result. And if you don't, that is often reflected in the letter. The amount of time you put in is what you get out. I would say most letters of recommendation are actually mediocre. And again, that is a reflection of the judgment of the candidate. They do carry weight. But the weight that it's given is contingent upon, you know, other things in the file. Thank you for that. You actually answered another question that I had. Dean Butts, why don't law schools want a letter from my mentor? My mentor didn't teach me and I didn't work for them, but they know me and they can they can write a really good letter. But but I've been told that schools don't want that. Why is that? Because more important than, I think, looking for a character reference, we're looking for individuals who can speak to your experience in the classroom or in a work setting. Now, it's great that you, you know, you have a mentor who might be able to give you a great character reference and tell us all the wonderful things about you. And while that might be nice and make students feel good, it's not giving the admissions committee what they're looking for, right? We have a lot of nice people who apply to law school. Then unfortunately, we have to deny, you know, it's not a contest to see who can be the nicest. It's, is this individual going to excel in my law school? What types of things am I looking for to help paint that picture for me? So I'm going to need the letter of recommendation to come from a faculty member or somebody who's supervising you or someone who can give you feedback about your work product, because that's what we're looking for. And we need, you know, 
all different narratives and those perspectives to help us get a clear picture about whether or not you we think you're going to excel in our particular program. And that same letter, you know, might be really convincing to one law school and maybe, you know, not so much to another school. So again, it's important to be very thoughtful, as Dean Simmons said, about who you're asking to write these letters of recommendation and ensure that they're saying more than just this person's really nice. I've known them for a really long time. They show up to work and they're punctual. Those types of letters of recommendation also are not helpful. So I think being able to provide a little bit of guidance to the recommender about exactly the types of things you'd like them to highlight is helpful. I will also say, sometimes a recommender will say, why don't you just write the letter for me and give it to me? I would shy away from doing that as well. Because if it doesn't sound, if it sounds like you, and we want to remind you, we've seen what you've written in your application, what you've written in your personal statement, what you've written on the LSAT writing sample. If the letters of recommendation also sound like they come from you, then we're not getting the perspective that we're looking for. So just be, be cautious when recommenders are saying, just write me a letter. It's fine to kind of say, oh, can you touch upon this particular project that I worked on? or talk about, you know, this particular paper or assignment that I did. Those things are fine, but I would again try to shy away from writing the letter yourself. Thank you for that. Dean McShay, I have a question from the audience. Do letters from professors take precedence over all other letters or would it be better to mix it up and include one from a professor and say another one from a judge that you intern for? Oh, that's a great question. So first, the admissions committee comprises of people with different perspectives and they're looking for different things. It could be any number of stakeholders within the law school community. I think faculty members would probably value letters from faculty above all else. But I think they are also objective enough to understand and value unique skills that are outside of the classroom that a, a person could provide to, that another person could provide to the mix. All in all, law school is a, an, a, a professional em uh, academic environment. So both are important and both have weight. You know, there are students who will be successful either way, whether they're K through JD or whether they have work experience out there in the field. But many times students will ask, well, what is, you know, how can I make myself stand out in an application process? Your perspective is really the only way that you can do that. Couple that with experiences those are things that do make you unique in a process and how you shape and articulate those experiences. So again, I think that letters of recommendation from faculty are strong, but you also have to bear in mind that not everyone is in the same space where they are right out of law school, excuse me, right out of undergrad, and you know, immediately or three to five years. Some people have decades of professional experiences in between the time that they've gone to undergrad or any other type of academic experience before they're coming to law school. So I really think that, again, it depends. And I think it depends on all of the characteristics that you're bringing to the table, whether or not one letter of recommendation will be stronger than another. If you've not worked, if you've not been in an academic setting in 15 years, there's probably nothing that that academic letter recommendation is going to say that's really going to have a deeper impact than what your current employer would be saying about your work product and how you've contributed to their environments. 
So I think I think context is important in all these things. I'll stop it there. Just to remind everyone, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to get to any more audience questions. I have one last question for our panel, and then we'll be closing out. So for this last question, Dean Lundy Roberts, I'm coming back to you. When I worked as a congressional intern, right, I decided to ask the congressman for a letter, but I was instructed by the admissions office that that may not be the best letter to come out of that office. And the instructions that they gave me were substance over title. How does that translate? What does that mean? So I think the collective experience on this panel is probably a hundred years, but we're all just fabulous still. But what I would say, and I say that because we've seen a lot of political letters. We've seen letters from congressmen. Some of us have seen letters from presidents, you know, city councilmen, governors. And unfortunately, what's memorable about the letter is, oh, let's see this person's signature, right? Back in the day when we were getting real letters now with the PDFs, because the letters are, are often not substantial. You can tell that the congressperson or the councilman really hasn't worked with the prospective student, doesn't know them, probably looks like a form letter where the name is just stuck in and then it's very generic, nonspecific, generalized language that could apply to me or anyone that's attending our panel today. The substance is important, again, because we're looking for someone to give an objective opinion on qualities that give us an idea that you're ready for this very rigorous experience and the type of student that you're going to be in the classroom. So just having a letter with someone who has a great title Having a letter from even someone who's an alum, and some people think, oh, if I get a letter from an alum, but that person doesn't know you well, doesn't add that added mm, that I think Dean Simmons was talking about earlier, where you're moving your file from, I'm not sure there are, you know, 500 people with this median LSAT in my class, but wow, this letter, or oh, this letter is pretty mediocre. I'm just going to extend a waitlist offer as I have, you know, for dozens of other people. It's a missed opportunity focusing on the title and not the substance. And we really want that letter to demonstrate how fantastic you are in the classroom, how fantastic you are in the work environment. And, and that just simply doesn't come from knowing someone who's famous or have a title, but really focusing on the relationship that you've had with that person. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And thank you to each of my panelists for our audience. We really appreciate you being here with us. And for our listeners, we appreciate you for listening. If you do have questions, again, do drop them in the discussion forum. I'm always happy to be in contact with you. And with that, we will be announcing we're trying to squeeze one last roundtable in for the end of the year. Stay tuned. Watch the discussion forum for that announcement. And with that, I will bid you good evening. If you're interested in more help and guidance for getting into law school, also check out our website at sevensage.com. That's the number seven, S-A-G-E.com. You can learn more about our LSAT course and tutoring, as well as the work that our professional admissions and writing consultants can do to help you with your applications. You can even schedule a free consultation with our LSAT tutors and with our admissions consultants. 